we're all having an experience of social distancing. Did you know that since we've been kind of sequestered or self-quarantined, that there's been an uptick in both suicides and domestic violence? Kind of makes sense if you understand human behavior. We are made from love. We're not autonomous human beings that do very well in isolation. Only none of us do well with loneliness. But there is something about when we are all together. Boy, we can get on each other's nerves. What leads us through this weird experience of human life where we really can't be alone, but we also sometimes have troubles being around others? We call that experience, that mystery, love. And somehow love is revealed to us in the cross, that love descends from heaven to raise us up, and that the sign of transcendent divine love is the life of the saint. It's found in the sacraments. We experience it when we hear the word of God, because God is the good shepherd. He's the gate through which we enter into transcendent love. Every question about Catholicism is ultimately a question about love. This is Father John Arnold, and this is Oral Valley Catholic. You know, when we talk about love, it's something more than passion, isn't it? Most of your experience of love is about whether or not you care for someone else or they care for you. When we confuse passion, eros, with the call to love, it's not that eros, that passion, isn't a kind of love, but it points to something more than just itself. We cannot live out of our passions. Do you remember last week, it was the story of Jesus joining these two men, uh, his uncle Cleopas and another fella, as they're fleeing Jerusalem. They've seen everything they need to see. They've seen Jesus crucified. They've heard about the empty tomb. They've heard about the resurrection. But you know what? They just can't seem to put it together into a coherent story. They don't get what it means. And that's the truth about reality. We see the same reality as unbelievers see it. We just make something very different about it. Uh, we understand it differently because how we think about reality is really is a story. It doesn't spread on a, a doesn't fit in a spreadsheet. It isn't just an argument. It's how you put together everything that's of ultimate and whatever importance in your life. Do you remember how Jesus led those two men to understanding? Well, he went back to the Old Testament and explained how the Old Testament uh, really foretold the crucifixion of the Messiah and the resurrection. If you understand it correctly, you'll see that God himself has done what he's always promised to do. He's come down to teach us, to lead us, to be the gateway to eternal life, to a life more abundantly, as Jesus describes it in the gospel today. But I just tell, told you, that's a religious story. It's a story religious people tell each other. How else would you explain meaning in life? How else would you explain what your hopes for are for? Well, how about science? What if you try to explain the experience of the resurrection uh, through chemistry and physics? Uh, what would you say? You'd say, well, there was too much acid in creation, so Jesus had to uh, bring down some alkali, and that created a salt, which we call eternal life and life most abundantly. The uh, problem with that 
is it's the wrong kind of language to describe basic human needs. Alkalis and acids may describe why you have an upset stomach. It doesn't explain why you're, you love your spouse and they also drive you crazy. Apples and oranges, science is just the wrong language. Religion and chemistry both have their own methodologies. They're very different because they're asking different questions. Well, how about philosophy? You say, I'm not a philosopher. I don't read philosophy. Everybody's got a philosophy. You know the people that say that the only thing that exists is a material existence, and so we're just like the chemicals and ourselves and illusion? That's not science. Science, how could science possibly prove that? All science can do is uh, measure, weigh, uh, look at repeating phenomena, come up with interpretations. Science is just a story we tell ourselves to to explain material reality. The value of science is that those stories have predictive power. They seem to describe, in some extent, why the coronavirus uh, has just run amok throughout the world. But philosophy... If you say there's only material things, that's metaphysics. Metaphysics is what is beyond nature. When you say there's nothing beyond nature, it's just a negative metaphysics. It's a philosophy. And philosophies are nothing but arguments. That's what a philosophy is. Science measures what is only can be measured empirically. Philosophy makes an argument, an interpretation of human experience. And so if you were to go to modern philosophers, 19th and 20th centuries, what would they tell you? That religion is a psychological projection of our need for, if you're Freud, a father figure, if you're Karl Marx, it's an opium for the people. It's how powerful the powerful people keep the poor down. If you're Ludwig von Feuerbach, um, what you're going to say, it's just wishful thinking, is essentially what Feuerbach said. So... What's wrong with all of that? Well, just think of the argument. God exists. God sent his son to us. And so religion is simply hopeful wishing. Logically, it doesn't work. God sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross to free us from sin. Therefore, it's all about power relationships. And we use religion to keep people down. That doesn't make any sense. That's Marx. And then Sigmund Freud, that everybody wants to basically have sex with their parents. Um, well, okay. Uh, let's just not even deal with that one. The point being is some philosophies start from an assumption that God exists or doesn't exist when they start philosophizing. Philosophy can make the existence of God more probable or, depending on how you argue it, more improbable. But at the end of the day, it's just an argument. Religion's something different. Religion is a story that God tells us. First, you gotta believe in God. Then you have to believe that God has revealed himself in history, that a God who is love, which is, I think, the only way to explain the world, would reach out to us to show us what it is we're supposed to do. And what's he tell us uh, to do? Uh, you have to be faithful to your spouse. You have to learn to live chastely. You have to care for the poor. You have to forgive people who try to hurt you. You can't live out of your past angers. And you have to trust and follow Jesus through the cross and the suffering in your life because it's the only way you're going to meet God. 
Because if you're always running away from painful experiences, you will not do well with reality because it's God's reality. You know what? Has the ring of truth to me. But the problem is, is what if you don't want to leave things behind? What if, you know, there's just too many things that you value that you can control and you just don't want God to change you? Well, that's the gospel today. It's the gospel of the good shepherd. And the good shepherd gospel is all the gospel runs on typology. Do you remember typology from last week? It was when Jesus was talking about the Old Testament. It's how the church in the New Testament uses stories from the Old Testament to understand why Jesus is the Messiah. Because it's, he's not a military man. He doesn't defeat the Romans in battle. He fights evil. And so typology appears all through uh, Catholicism. Well, just think of it. Jesus is the new Moses leading us in the new Exodus. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb of God. Jesus is the king of Israel. Jesus is the new Adam. He's divine wisdom, bread from heaven, the new manna, the light, the darkness. These are all Old Testament types used to understand how Jesus saves, how he teaches. We all think through metaphor. Even when scientists tell stories, they're always using metaphors to help understand realities that are really not capable of direct observance. So we have the same problem with religion that science has. We can't directly observe what happens in heaven. Uh, we can't really know God um, in, uh, in a sense of a, of a scientific observation because, friends, the most important thing in life is love and explaining love. And religion is all about love. And it says, God, the love in us is put there by our creator. When we're made in the image and likeness of God, that image and likeness is found in love. And how do we learn to love? Because we have to be taught. If you ever had a, six, a crush when you were 16 years old, you know you had a lot to learn about love. Well, I'm guessing none of us have learned it all yet. And so let's think about how Jesus is the good shepherd. Psalm 23, which was the psalm today, and everybody knows this psalm. It's almost at every funeral. You remember this? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In verdant pastures, he gives me repose. Besides restful waters, he leads me, he refreshes my soul. You know, on the fourth Sunday of Easter, the church begins to transition from stories about the resurrection to stories about how the church makes Christ present in scripture and in sacrament. We're being led, one might say, shepherded into eternal life. There is a living voice of faith in the world, a living voice of authority in the world when it comes to God. And it is the church, especially as made present in the ministry of the Holy Father. So let's think about Jesus' self-description in the gospel today as the good shepherd and wonder what it might mean. Jesus is using a figure of speech when he calls himself the good shepherd in today's gospel. The Greeks called it paroima. Uh, we would say allegory. An allegory is where, uh, it's kind of metaphor, where one image that you understand helps you understand something that's a little bit harder. And so when he calls himself the good shepherd, well, we know what a shepherd is. When he calls himself the sheep gate, we can imagine what a, a sheep gate is. But to be both the shepherd and the sheep gate, that's an interesting metaphor. 
See, in the sheepfold is what we in the Golden West would call a corral. But in the old days, it was a stone enclosure with one entryway. And I guess the shepherd or a guard would actually sleep in the gateway uh, to protect the sheep from, from people who would steal. And so Jesus, in another part of this uh, reading from John, uh, where he describes himself as the good shepherd, says, So Jesus said again, Amen, amen, I say to you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and slaughter and destroy. I came so that they might have life and have it more abundantly. So in this reading, there's a part where he describes himself as a shepherd. I've asked you to focus on the part where he describes himself as the gate, because this is interesting. So yeah, I've already explained what a sheep gate is, that nobody gets in there unless the shepherd gets in there. But how can you be the guy that both guards the sheep gate and the way, the passage through which you enter? Well, typology, the Old Testament. We're going to talk about Ezekiel. I can already hear you. I know what you're saying. Father John Arnold, Ezekiel was not part of the readings today. Why are we dealing with this? Well, in Easter time, almost all the readings are from the New Testament. But to understand the New Testament images, you still got to go back to the Old Testament. And that's where Ezekiel comes in. So this is a reading from Ezekiel chapter 34 about sheep and shepherding. Thus says the Lord God, Ho, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the crippled you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Ezekiel 34, uh, verses two to six. So do you see where Jesus gets the thing about thieves and robbers? He's talking about bad leadership. You know, it's a constant of uh, human existence that we have good leaders and some corrupt leaders. And so Ezekiel is criticizing the corrupt leaders of the time. Jesus is repurposing it to criticize the religious leaders of his own time. But then he goes on, and this is verse 11 of the same chapter. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock, when some of his sheep have been scattered abroad, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Well, that's interesting. In Ezekiel, it's God himself who's the shepherd. He's going to come down and get the job done because we fail. So what's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying he is God present gathering his sheep. But that still doesn't really answer the question for us, doesn't it? Does it? About the sheep gate? To understand that, you have to look at the reading today from Acts of the Apostles. Too soon. Too soon.
So, today in the Acts of the Apostles, we are hearing an authentic account of what first century Christian apostolic preaching contained. Uh, It's about baptism. And this is from St. Peter, and this is him preaching the Acts of the Apostles. It was our first reading. Let me read in pertinent part to you. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children and to all that are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to. And he testified with many other words and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. There were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's Acts chapter 2. First, a moment of self-disclosure. I have never baptized 3,000 people on one day. An Immaculate Conception, 25, but that was pretty brisk business there. Uh, so we're, we're seeing virgin preaching territory and how it is that the Jewish people responded to preaching in Jerusalem until the authorities really cracked down on it. And that's really the story of the Acts of the Apostles. But you have to see this part of it. Why did people convert? What brought them to the church and baptism? So I wanna point out three aspects of this. Christian preaching pointed to the shame and guilt that every human being feels. Hey, even atheists have shame and guilt. You know, if you don't have any shame and guilt, our word for that is sociopath or psychopath because negotiating the dark side of our life is a big part of how it is we learn to love. How many people live out of the darkness in our life and try to love out of it? Doesn't work very well. Trying to control other people does not work. And so you look at sin as an addiction that undermines our capacity for happiness. But you know, some people get that. They actually do want to love better. You gotta at least want it. But others, they don't wanna hear that. And so they play a part in their own self-destruction and the destructions of others but the apostolic preaching was the way out. So St. Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you. And so what does early Christian preaching do? It points people towards the sacrament of baptism. You see in a pattern here? Remember last week, Jesus, Cleopas, I've already talked about it uh, a couple of times. When he's talking about the scriptures, where's the story going? To the breaking of the bread, the Eucharist. When St. Peter is preaching about Jesus crucified, which is the proclamation of Christ, where is it going? It's going to baptism. And that leads us to point number two. What did the early church think about baptism? Well, pretty obvious from this passage and pretty much the entire New Testament is baptism is God's power to forgive sins that only God can forgive. Yeah, you and I can forgive each other, but there is an aspect of sin, uh, any sin really, that only God can forgive. So Peter says, be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And when you're baptized into Jesus' suffering death, you enter into the forgiveness promised on the cross. You know, people can negotiate their personal relationships. Atheists can do that. But to see that transcendent dimension, how repentance of sin, accepting forgiveness, opens yourself up to reality, That can be a tougher one for some people, but it's the heart of what it means to have life and life more abundantly. Come on, most of us don't see life the way Mother Teresa of Calcutta or John Paul II 
St. John Paul saw it, right? It's because somehow their minds are open to reality in a deeper, more transcendent way, which is going in both directions than uh, most of us really have, but hopefully each of us have a taste of it. The post-resurrection appearances of Jesus emphasize this reality. The sacraments do what God alone has the authority to make real. This leads us to point number three. Peter calls the people to baptize everybody, including their children. Listen to this and understand what it means. He, said, he didn't say, this is for you and your children if you've reached the age of reason and you choose it for yourselves. No, he says, this is for you and your children. Here's a Catholic radical belief in the power of God's grace. Baptism of children before they can even respond to God is all about how God reaches out to us. Uh, it's not about age of reason. It's not about agreeing. It's not about first professing your faith. God's grace goes well beyond that. It is not confined to our own understanding. That's why some people were baptized just when they were kids, find their way back ultimately to the church. God's covenant love in the New Testament is more inclusive than in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, if you were a male, you could be brought into the covenant through circumcision. But in the New Testament, it's males and females. It is a new covenant, a new way of looking at reality. Just for a minute, think about how much that changed a woman's position in the world via V males. And that's been a hard one if you've been following the last 21 centuries of history. But I don't think you get there unless men and women are equal in the sight and the love of God. Just think of it, first person sent with notice of the resurrection is, you got it, a female. God is doing something for Eve. So there's this great story about Graham Greene, who is a Catholic English novelist. Uh, he wrote a bunch of Catholic books, about four of them actually. Um, and I've read all but one of them. Uh, and he never was not a Catholic, but he kind of fell away from the practice of his faith. He liked women who he wasn't married to too much. And I guess, but he had a great social conscience. There's a lot of admirable things about Graham Greene. But here's my favorite story about Graham Greene. When he was in Italy, he had the chance to meet Padre Pio, you know, St. Pio, uh, the stigmatist, and recognized as a living saint in his time. And at the last minute, he canceled the meeting. When he was asked why he canceled the meeting with this saint, Graham Greene quite honestly and candidly replied, because I believe that man is a saint and he can change me. And I like the way I am all right. Well, that's how people think about it. And Tertullian, who was in the second century, an early church father, paraphrasing him, he'd say, hey, if I told everybody I had a sacristy full of gold and I'm going to give you a sack if you come here, you would be beating down the doors to get in. But if I tell you that I have eternal life for you, if you will repent from sin and be baptized, crickets, Man, you're right, I'm paraphrasing. But it has the ring of truth to it, doesn't it? See, it, when we tell a story to ourselves, sometimes we have the ability just to lie to ourselves and tell us stories that want, want, we want to be true. I mean, if you just were a materialist and you said, there's really nothing more than this life and I can be a good person, can I be a good person? You know, ultimately, human beings are sinners and that's just gonna end up as a self-indulgent story. 
Philosophy, wow, philosophy has done some amazing things. I'm a, I love philosophy. But you know, it's an argument. And if it's an argument, then anyone can come up with their own rationale. Lord knows Ludwig von Feuerbach, Karl Marx, and Sigmund Freud brought up with their own. And they felt no obligation to anybody but their own consciences. You know, that's a pretty narrow world. Religion talks about a much bigger world. It proclaims a truth that's true for all people in all time. The Christian religion proclaims Christ crucified, buried, risen from the dead, and ascended to the right hand of the Father, that this is the image of love that frees us from sin and all the problems that come out during the coronavirus uh, pandemic. But we all know that our baptisms were in a moment when we became suddenly perfect, but they were the moment when everything changed for us. A gate was open, a path was open. We at least gave our attention to God. And even if we wander and come back, that at the heart of it is the good shepherd's voice. So you can tell yourself that you can be explained on our spreadsheet. You make a really good argument why it's okay to be you. But there is only one shepherd. There's only one sheep gate. You know, love doesn't fit on a spreadsheet. Love isn't an argument, it's an experience. And though we have all sorts of doctrines that are important in the Catholic faith, what they're supposed to open us to is the experience of God's love in our life, the good shepherd, the sheep gate. Love is experienced by those who can be vulnerable and open themselves up to the love of God. Thank you for listening to this podcast. This Thursday at 6 p.m., if you're available, that's the first Thursday in May, uh, I'm going to be hosting a Facebook Live event because it's a great month and it's about Mary. And I say, if you don't get Mary right, you don't get God right. So if you don't have a Facebook account, sign up for one. If you have one, at least check it out. So I hope you have a good week. Say your prayers and we'll see you again next week.